Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Today, we're talking a little bit about the lady who launched Michael Buble. Let's go. On, ladies, welcome to the Biz Women Rock podcast. I'm your host, Katie Kremitzos, and I am bringing you tremendous stories from business women all over the world in all sorts of different industries so they can talk about their business journey so yours can be inspired by it. Before we get rolling, here's a little word from our awesome sponsor. So I'm here with Jessica Lalau, who is the Director of Just Awesome Communication, let's just call you that. She's got a really awesome long title, Director of Marketing, Communication, Social Media. So let's just call her the Director of Knowing Stuff uh, at Postcard Mania. Jessica, you guys have dealt with tens of thousands of small business clients all over the world. And I'm really, really interested to know what is the number one mistake that small businesses make in their marketing? Hi, Katie. Well, other than giving themselves too long of a title, I think that (laughs) the worst thing businesses do in small business marketing is probably just not sticking to it, you know? So many businesses look at marketing as something seasonal or they only do it during a slow period, but this really inhibits businesses from growing consistently. So what we recommend is spending about 15% of revenue on a year-long plan and actually, if you can do 20 to 30% if you're a startup is ideal because that's when you really need to raise awareness. And um, you want to do something every month or week, depending on what you can do. Uh, Postcard Mania started with no investment capital, and we only sent out 1,000 postcards a week for a really long time. And last year, we started sending out 180,000 per week, and we earned over $22.6 million in revenue. Wow. So, you know, yeah, your budget and what you do should scale as you grow and as, you know, you bring in more money. So don't get freaked out by hearing those numbers, you know, just do what you can and do it consistently. You guys practice what you preach from the very beginning, don't you? Oh, hardcore. Yeah. Every single week, 180,000. So make sure that you're investing at least a year's time in a great marketing campaign. And you can do that at Postcard Mania. Make sure to visit postcardmania.com forward slash biz women rock and you will get some free samples from Jessica. Good God, I am so excited to bring you this interview today, mainly because it was just so much fun for me to chat with her. Uh, My guest is Beverly Delich, and she's the founder of Silver Lining Management. Uh, It's a whole uh, agency management company, consulting firm, which is really the evolution that she's in right now for uh, music artists, musicians, and her kind of huge claim to fame, and you're going to see why it's absolutely worth noting, is the fact that she's the manager that kind of got Michael Buble going. Um, She's kind of the one who started him out and was able to eventually kind of hand him over to the current managers that he has. Um, And she really goes into that story, which is just so fascinating. Here's what I want you to listen for. Um, lots of drive, <laughs> lots of hustle, and a really cool inside track to what the music industry is really like, what it takes to be a manager, what it takes to hustle your clients into the doors. Um, 
and what it means to evolve your business, uh, which is really great. So uh, you're just gonna really enjoy this conversation. Beverly is amazing. Let's go. Beverly, what's going on, girl? Thanks so much for being on the show. Well, Katie, I'm really looking forward to it. I have been for a long time now. Yay, good, good. Um, so Silver Lining Management, um, you do something pretty unique, and I don't believe we've had too many other women who have this type of business, but you really, you help manage musicians, artists who are really trying to make a name for themselves in the industry, and you do that very, very well, um, and you've been doing it for some time since 1989 in some way, shape, or form. Um, I want to give everyone listening a little bit of a background so they really have something to stand on when we start going into what you're experiencing now. So can you give a little bit of a background as to kind of how you got involved in all this stuff in the first place? Well, yes, uh, my background actually at the time that I got into this, I was in interior decorating, interior design. And then I met Ray Carroll, who was uh, one of the second generation members of the Platters, you know, smoke it's in your eyes, only you, all that mm-hmm. music. Mm-hmm. And um, he, uh, we got, I got to know him, and he wanted me to come into the business with him because he felt that I had, you know, this solid background because uh, of sales background, etc. And so I did. And then uh, we set up uh, a company where we um, started soliciting to have uh, clients. Uh, we started with uh, some country artists, and then we started getting them some work, and that's how I got started. Got it. Uh, I got to ask this because when you're first, I, now you've been doing this a long time. So I know you know the ropes. We're going to get into maybe some of the unique components that you need to know as the manager. But in the very beginning, did, any particular major hiccup that you had, which taught you a lesson about how to really manage somebody's career and how to help them get g- these gigs and all that sort of stuff? Any particular memory that you have that was perhaps a painful one of a lesson that you learned? <laughs> painful to get them into? Well, I think. Um, Trust is the most important thing that you can have with an artist and the fact that they have to believe in you and you have to believe in them. That's the two-way street. And then it's the networking to get them started uh, that you have to do, assigning them with an agency, etc. But I think the most important thing in the beginning is um, people know, getting to know you and their, their trust in you, uh, not only the artists themselves, but the other um, people in the business themselves, the other uh, uh, colleagues that you might meet, knowing that you have what it takes to uh, get the ball rolling for them to start working with you. Well, because you not only do like, uh, like you were explaining to me, one of the areas of expertise that you have now is that you really love working with new artists or who's somebody who's like just wanting to make a name and they don't really have a name quite yet or somebody who's who's looking to kind of make a, a huge transition and rebrand or something like that. So you're helping them actually you know, create a, a look, uh, you know, create wording for stuff, create kind of who they are, what they're going to represent. But um, you're really, on top of all of that logistical stuff, you're really hustling for them. I mean, you're out, when you talk about networking, you're out basically like um, schmoozing, trying to get all these different artists that you represent in the door at different places. Is that right? Absolutely. Networking is very important, going to all of the events that uh, you know of, uh, working on your on your website, getting your website out there so people can read it. Of course, your business cards. Yes, it's all about networking. And then people. And at the beginning, it is difficult, as you said. That would be the the biggest uh, hurdle at the beginning when you're first starting out for people to say, "Well, who are you, and how can you do it?" Mm-hmm. So, uh, the most important thing you can have is, um, like I said, the belief. When they meet you, they have to know that you're serious. There's no games. 
you have to, if you're going to do this, you, you want to show them that you're true to yourself and true to them and uh, honest, trustworthy, and that's what it really starts. Anything, any, business, any kind of business, as you know, Katie, starts with trusting someone, and I think that's the biggest thing at the very beginning. Right. Now, you had something super interesting kind of happen to you or you came across pretty early on in your career that you saw somebody whose name that we all know. Can you can you talk a little bit about that story? Oh, yes, I love that story. Well, uh, Ray, <laughs> I love Carol, that, and I. <laughs> I love that story, too, because I'm a huge fan, like huge, like major, major fan. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, uh, when uh, Ray and I, when we started our, our company together, Ray, Carol, um, we started to organize various talent contests around the city because people wanted to get, the, well, the club owners wanted to get people into the club to drink on nights that weren't that busy and to schmooze, etc., and so we started organizing these talent contests at the various venues and clubs around Vancouver, and that's how I first met Michael. He entered this talent contest that Ray and I had organized at the Big Bamboo on Broadway in Vancouver, and he won the contest. And through an oversight, which I hadn't seen as the organizer of the contest, he won the contest. I mean, he the whole place came down when he performed in every way, his voice, his his stage presence, his personality, his, his contact with the audience, just what you see now. He always had that. And through an oversight, um, I didn't notice that he was underage. And so I went over <laughs> to him and told him, Michael, I have some good news and some bad news. The good news is you won the contest and the bad news is I have to disqualify you because, you you, you know, my name is on the line here. My, I, we're not allowed to do this. And so, of course, he was very upset. And so I had, in the meantime, besides the talent contests, I had st- started working at the P&E, our ex- exhibition during the summer fair, booking community entertainment there. And one of the programs that I that was under my umbrella was the youth talent search for ages 13 to 21. And so uh, about a year later, I ran into Michael and he was, you know, struggling and, and he was working with um, uh, his uncle who was trying to help him along. And he wasn't in the music industry himself, his uncle. So I said to Michael, I have this program at the P&E, the youth talent search. Why don't you come and enter that? And he did. He was actually out on the, on the fishing boat with his father at the time. And he came in and he entered a preliminary contest, which he didn't win, but I had the opportunity to invite him to the P&E, and he entered there, and he won, hands down, and that's how we started. Wow. And part of the, uh, the winnings was a trip to Memphis, Tennessee for the winners every year. So coming home on the airplane, Michael said to me, would you be my manager? And that's how we started. How cool. Uh so my little Michael Bublé story is that my um, my sister a couple years ago got uh, like, I think it was like Christmas CD or something like that. She got, every year she seems to get me a Michael Bublé CD. And um, one year she got it. It was the very first time I had ever really heard him. And <laughs> my husband, we we had driven across country at that point, got, you know, had Christmas, whatever. And we were driving back across country and nothing else played except for that darn CD the entire 36 hours yeah. it took <laughs> to do it and we did not get sick of it that's the that's a that's a great thing about this all and he and he is we i've seen him in concert a couple times he's just just absolutely amazing so um so once you became his manager like 
I would like to kind of get under the hood as far as what a manager really does. I, I know we're saying you're net, you're out networking and you're kind of helping them with stuff. What are the very specifics that you helped Michael Bublé with that you do for all of your clients that, that maybe somebody who d- isn't in the mu- music industry doesn't really see? Okay. Well, that's all. Those are all wonderful questions. So I'm going to start with one that you had asked me previously about the blips in the road, because this is where I can address the blips in the road when I worked (laughs) with Michael. Because at the beginning, it was all fun, right? It was all all so new. He performed um, uh, at a a club here in Vancouver, Bubaloo, for nine months on a Sunday and Monday to bring in business on nights that weren't very busy. And the place was packed all the time. And that was when it was like the fairy tale, right? Everybody loved him, and we were so in love with everything. And then as then um, he got let go from the club because the owners felt nothing was happening on Sunday and Monday nights because people came to see Michael. They weren't interested in drinking on a weeknight, <laughs> so per se, right? And that's when it really started to be difficult because I wanted to get him other places. And no matter who I ca- but I followed every lead. When you ask about that, I followed every lead, every business card anybody gave to Michael, he would give to me. I would follow them. And that's when it became very difficult because everybody said, well, he's just in their lounge singer. Sure, he's really cute in the club and all that kind of stuff, but what are we going to do with him? And that was the phrase, what are we going to do with him? And that's what's consistently in my book. And then I did get a contact from a friend through a friend with uh, Mike Cutino, who uh, is in New York, and he has New York Nightlife magazine. And because of the friend that referred me, um, he said, come to New York, and we'll see what we can do for you. <laughs> and so Michael and I made that trip to New York, and he was actually able to get us a um, an interview with William Morris Agency. They took us out to lunch, wined and dined us, everything, and then they said, you know, they'd see what they could do. Well, at that time, we only had Michael's uh, Babalu CD. That was our calling card. And again, when we got home, they contacted me and said, you know, he's, really adorable. The, the CD is really good, but we don't know what to do with them again. What do you do with them? <laughs> that were, those were the blips that we had. And that uh, is when I can say to you what I had was persistence because I believed in him because I saw what he could do. And I remember a friend of mine when they saw him perform at a local club in Vancouver, she said to me, Bev, if Michael doesn't make it, nobody ever will. And you know what? That's what I always believed. And so then I went on to get him in a, uh, a local stage play here at the Red Rock Diner. I went to see Bill Millard, who is the artistic director for all of these small venues in Vancouver, stage venues. And he said, you know, he, he's seen Michael perform in clubs, but he couldn't imagine he could do this show. I haunted this man and, and called him from everywhere I could ever imagine. And finally one day he said... <laughs> Okay, he said, let him go see Dean Regan, who was the producer. And I, 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 Dean met him, and he said, well, he's got a hell of a voice. I don't know about the dancing. I said, Dean, I just know he can do this if you have somebody teaching choreography. And this is the kind of thing I did, because I believed in him so much. And as time went on, as you can appreciate, I never thought of it as an investment. As an investment, I just thought of it, you can't quit now. You can't quit now. You can't quit now because we kept going and going and going. And one thing led to another. And so after he, do you want me to keep going? Yeah, yeah, keep going. Okay. So after he was in that Red Rock Diner, his part was uh, an up-and-coming Elvis. It wasn't Elvis. Elvis wasn't out yet. And, and at the end of the show, they had this talent contest. That's what it was all about. Michael always won. Everybody applauded him because he was so good in the show. And he learned how to dance, etc. 
And then they developed Red Rock, that one, into Swing, and he got a part in that. I went to see Bill Miller again and said, Bill, he would be so good in this. How about a raise, which we never got. And then <laughs> he went on to perform in Toronto. And while he was in Toronto, I said, Michael, you have to stay in Toronto. If you come back to Vancouver, you're going to be another performer who just came back to Vancouver, and now what? And so he did. And then after a few months, I moved there myself because I felt I had to be there with him because people didn't believe he had a manager, etc. And so I moved to Toronto, and um, then there was uh, the 911 mishap, which was, of course, changed our world forever. And then um, one day, uh, David Foster called us and said that, oh, and we had been down to see David Foster as well, and David Foster said, you know, again, he didn't know what to do with him because he had Harry Connick Jr. to compete with, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. And nothing happened there. But then he brought us down to L.A., to, I mean, to Las Vegas to open up for Jay Leno because nobody was flying anymore, and Jay said that anybody that would come to Las Vegas to... Um, see him perform would get in free and so that's what started them coming back to Vanca, uh, back to las vegas and michael was the opening act for jay leno and so that was kind of a little bit of an opening for us and david started um getting michael to perform at various events every fundraisers he had and that to showcase him to see if people were receptive to him and they were but still nothing happened for a whole year we performed in toronto at small clubs michael was that was a very low point for michael being in toronto because still nothing was happening except performing in small clubs wow well Be- beverly i want to i want to interrupt here for a second just to ask because uh, so much of what i'm hearing right now is just so much hustle i mean real hustle and work and um, negotiating, and it's always interested me how the manager actually does it all. Because, and I mean financially, like as a business. Because you had, a, did you have other clients at this time, or was Michael Michael? No, and that that that's a low point for me too, gotcha. Katie. Because I, a, a manager doesn't take you on really. A manager like Bruce Allen wouldn't take anybody on unless. Michael, he met Michael with a record deal with Warner Brothers because I had been to see Bruce previously when he saw Michael at the Red Rock Diner and I went to see him at his office. It took a couple of months for his, his office assistant to get me in to even see him. And when I saw him, I gave him his Babalu CD, same thing. A couple of days later, we listened to him. He's really a cute kid. Don't know what to do with him. He said, I'm used to managing, you know, Brian Adams, etc." So yes, there was uh, one turn down after another. Um, but so I would, I would, Michael called me his manager, but yes, I had, I made no money from that. I was living on the money that I had made through my savings account and all of, and I was teaching vocals at the time, even in Toronto because there was no money, but I didn't think about it so much as being a manager as I was just someone that was for Michael, 100%. Right. Well, you know, I've always watched, uh, wondered about that. I just watched a, a whole documentary they did on uh, Shep, Shep Gordon, right? And, oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, he has this, he's this manager of, uh, of Alice Cooper, of all these guys. And I just wonder because so much, the, the manager's role really is being the number one cheerleader, like being the number yes. one advocate for their yes. clients. But, I mean, 
just standard of what I know and in my ignorance, it's like, okay, you get 20%. So all, all I'm imagining is like you literally flying here, flying there, going here, having all these expenses while he gets like booked little gig here, little gig here, little gig here. And 20% ain't that much of those little gigs. So actually I mean, it's 15%. And I, listen, I have to tell you <laughs> the, the cutest story when we were coming home from Memphis, when he said to me, would you be my manager? I want to make this my career. I'll give you 15% of everything I make. And I said to him, Michael, what's 15% of nothing? And we laughed. <laughs> Because all along when he knew I was writing my book, we always thought I was going to entitle the book 15% of nothing. But as I finished it, I felt I couldn't use that. It didn't didn't seem right. But no, there was no money. And the only manager that takes you on anytime is a manager that knows that they can make money on you, like instantly. Like if you take... um, um, Sarah McLaughlin uh, uh, Networks here, they take Matt, uh, maybe somebody on like her at the beginning, beginning because she wrote her own songs and right away they can make a CD that'll go out there. But we had nothing because everybody thought of Michael as a lounge singer ke- singing cover tunes. That wow. was it. Yeah. So, I mean, you got him to a point where where you did, you know, he did go with a different manager, and but you had to get him to that point. So explain kind of that. Like, how did that all come together? How did that, how, like, what happened there to really bring it to the point where he now kind of made that transition into, okay, now everyone knows who Michael Buble is? Yes. Well, after that, um, uh, the time when he performed for um, what's, Jay Leno, then uh, I, con- I contacted David one day, and I asked him, are you ever going to work with him? I asked him that point blank. And, and he, this is all in my book, and it's really quite humorous, because he, he said, well, we should talk. So he arranged for a conference call for Michael and me and him, and we talked about you know everything. And then uh, he kept leaving the line, because he was so busy with his other lines, and Michael said, I can't believe you're talking like this to David Foster. This is David Foster, and we're nothing. He's probably getting on on the other lines and saying, I've got this crazy woman in the other line. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the way it went. It was just adorable. And then um, David said, um, uh, okay, so after he performed for Jay Leno, we were due to fly home. And David called us from our rooms and said for, for us to get together and come to the Mirage because his friend Paul Anka thought he could help us. Well, Paul Anka, he was my idol, right? He's exactly my age even. Right, right. And so we went to the Mirage, met with them. Uh, David took us into a room uh, to where he could play the piano, uh, one of the uh, ballrooms at the hotel. And uh, Paul listened to him on several songs. We were a nervous wreck, Michael and I. And when we left, Paul said he thought he could help us. Well, of course, I cried. I was always crying because it had been such a struggle, right? right. So then uh, Dave, uh, Paul did call us on the Tuesday afterwards and said he could help us, that he would find an investor that did David the money to make the CD. And the next thing we knew, we were moving to L.A., and that's how it started. And I stayed with him the whole time until uh, the CD was finished, and I solicited the managers through David Foster's referrals, Mm -hmm. and I interviewed Barbara Streisand's manager, and I interviewed uh, Josh Groban's manager, and uh, Rod Stewart's manager, and uh, Natalie Cole. And I picked Bruce Allen because I'd always wanted Bruce. First of all, he was here in Vancouver. I knew him, and I felt him to be extra strong and extra um, forthright. And I knew that Michael needed someone like that. Right. And I picked Bruce Allen. Wow. Man, 
Um, I had always heard the story, and I don't know if this is true, but I had always heard the story that, um, you know, when he finally got to that moment of, you know, being able to get investment money that they told him, hey, we'll put in this investment money if you can raise, I think it was like a million dollars of investment, and then we'll put David, in... oh, yes. Is that true? Uh, okay, yes. Yes, and here we go. Uh, I'm glad you point, because, you know, I'm moving so quickly here. On the phone with David that day when Michael said that he's going to think you're crazy, David said... If you can raise $450,000, I can make the CD. And I said, absolutely, I'll find it, David. And that's when, when he left the line to answer the phone, Michael said, he's going to think you're some kind of a crazy woman. What are you, verklempt, he said? You, you don't talk like that to David. And Bev, how are you going to raise four hundred fifty? I said, Michael, I will. D- then David comes on at the phone, right? And I said, I would. So I went to see a couple of investors in Vancouver who said, first of all, they couldn't believe my loyalty to this kid, and they would see what they would do. And they came back and said, well, you know, everybody we talked to said they can't believe it takes $450,000 to make a CD, so nobody wants to do it. Guess what, Katie? It cost over $700,000 by the time we were finished. Wow. So, yes, that was true. They, 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 They refused. And uh, Paul Anka said that he would get the investor, which he did. And so when we went to L.A. to live, uh, to make the CD, uh, David saw the contract, and he told us we could not sign it because it would definitely prohibit Michael from any record label or anything signing with him because it was full of uh, this and that, you know, all of these tiebacks. Right. So I had to, unfortunately, I had to tell Paul, as green as I was in the industry, to tell Paul we couldn't accept the money, but because he had come forth and the only one to ever step up to the plate, Michael gave him points on his first CD, which was very generous. Wow. So what did you do after that? Because now you're literally sort of handing him over to Bruce I Allen. I cried a lot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I yeah. Mean, you want to talk about do? low points? Low points? Other than the fire we had when we had our uh, my business with Ray Carroll, we had a uh, a fire which we lost everything all our memorabilia and everything but this was the second lowest point yeah uh, it was very difficult but the highlight for me was my daughter had just had uh, a baby boy and so I had a grandson but it wasn't the same as that what I was in because I had done that for close to 10 years right, right. and that's all I knew I mean I was so involved in it and yes I knew the day would come I knew that I'd have to do this because I wasn't big enough to ever do what Michael needed to do once he signed with Warner Brothers. And I, and Bruce and I, once I picked him, he came to L.A. and we actually went and picked William Morris Agency for Michael, too. So we set the whole thing up together. And then, yes, when I handed him over, I didn't think it would be as difficult as it was, but it was very difficult. And the most difficult, the lowest point, Katie, was that nobody ever wrote about me. All they ever talked about was Brian, um, the Mulrooney wedding that where Michael yeah. met uh, David Foster. They, nobody ever talked about my time together. And I knew that it was difficult for Michael because he was now with Bruce, and I knew that he knew that Bruce wouldn't like him bragging about, you know, somebody was with him when he was now with Bruce, and he needed to brag around about Bruce. Right. And I knew all of that. But that was a really low point. It lasted for years. Is that part of why you wrote your book? Well, I always wanted to write my book, and Michael knew this because I've always had, I've had a very interesting, uh, a very interesting life and different and uh, one thing always said segued into another for my life. And so I always wanted to write the book. And surely when I went, Michael, his mom used to even say, put this in your book, put that in your book. Oh, <laughs> don't forget to put that in your book. And so then that's why I changed it to uh, come fly with me. Because when Michael asked me officially at his first CD release party to be his manager 
and his parents brought these flowers up onto the stage to give to me, I said, we're going to get them in the boat on, together and follow wherever the river takes us because, and that's what I felt was come fly with me. Hmm. So you've had this book out, um, you know, you've made that transition now uh, back into working with multitude of clients. Um, you know, you're helping people out who want to have the same sort of path that Michael's had. How, how are you managing that now? Because now it's not just one person that you're going and hustling, but you have a multitude of clients who, who are all getting advice for you, from you. You're hustling for all of them. So how do you work that? What are some of the strategies that you have to sort of manage and do really well for a, a whole slew of clients? Okay, well, first of all, I, I never honestly uh, approached anyone or hustled anyone. Everyone always came to me in the business because after Michael, they all knew me, right? Right. So I, to this day, I still get so many requests that I can't even answer because it doesn't make any sense for me to even respond, and I don't want to get into any verbal you know, accusations online. You know what people are like online. So I'm very careful about that. But the people that do contact me, I have worked with. Um, I've worked with uh, helping them with their voice, uh, placing them with an agency. This is all local. And then at, when, when my book came out, people started contacting me from all parts of the globe, which I loved. And they would contact me and say, could you work with me? And then um, the, re- the evolution of Skype, which is so phenomenal, that came about, and that's what I'm doing now. And this is the part that it has segued into that I really love is the consulting. So what people do is uh, they contact me, uh, they send me the funds through PayPal. Uh, then I go on and listen and look and listen at everything they've sent to me. And then I schedule a Skype and we discuss everything just as though you had come to see me at an office. Wow. Very cool. I love that. I love it. This is, this is really, I'm loving this because I've worked already. I've got a client in Australia, one in um, um, Australia and I've got uh, several in the States and, of course, Canada. And I love it because um, they're all different. One in Peru. So they're all different, and they, they send me their information. I look at it. And, you know, because I've never seen them before, I always have a fresh perspective on what I see, and we right. share that. And right. that, I'm loving this, loving it. But I don't Now, Here's the first thing when you ask me that. The first thing I say to everybody is, if you're contacting me because of Michael Bublé and you think that I can get you a record deal, forget it. <laughs> That's not what I'm all about. Because the record deals nowadays, especially, as Michael used to tell me every time he called me, are, you know, are less and less because rec- there's so much you can do on your own online. Right. Right. So forget the record deal. If you want help because I've got tons of experience I'd love to work with you. And that's what I'm really loving. Got it. So you're really, your whole agency is really acting as um, really a consulting firm to help the artists get to where they need to be so they can be educated themselves and go do whatever they need to do. That's what it's doing now. Yes, I did work as an agent for a while. I worked on and off for maybe a total of eight people, uh, various uh, various genres, uh, maybe blues, uh, rock, uh, whatever, and, and I worked for them for a while, placed them with an agency, then they're on their own, because I said to them, no record deals, don't think that that's what I can get you, because I don't even want to go there. And so um, I've worked with them, and then now the consulting is even better, because um, as I said, I can give a fresh perspective, just like I did when I when I worked with them as an agency. Only this is even better. Right. I got to ask you this because, and this is such a stereotype, so I'm going to ask forgiveness up front. But traditionally okay. speaking, 
um, you know, music artists are not, they tend to have a pretty tight budget. So how, yes. how, in your experience, like what has been a way that you've been able to manage working with somebody who has a really tight budget, but it doesn't sacrifice your business model? Well, at the beginning when I was working as an agency, I, um, a talent ma- a manager with the, like the eight people I told you about or what, what the, whatever the number is, I would book them and take a percentage. But there wasn't a lot of money in that because they already had to make take the percentage and pay the agency that was working with them. So that's one of the reasons I stopped doing that. So that's when I decided that the consulting is the way to go because they take their hard-earned money, just like I would do, because I've been to um, uh, counselors for various things in my life, and you place that hard-earned money in their hands and you come away hopefully feeling better, even if it's only one time, and that's what I'm finding. If they only have the small amount it takes for maybe one hour they get so much out of that that it's worth their while and they can go from there and that they want to schedule another hour, they can. We can, you know, they can work on some things, come back to me and say, I've done this, what do you think now? And we can go on. And they can afford that. They can afford those small pieces. Right, right. What's the average tenure that you have for working with clients? Well, um, one client I have in, in Australia is on the second round now. Uh, we had his first four hours, and we're working on his second four hours now. And then once I placed him with a successful agency, this is in Australia, once I placed him with a successful agency, which I had researched on my own in mm-hmm. Australia, and um, he's more or less looked after, then Got I it. wouldn't work with him for anything else. Even if, if somebody said, you want to be my manager, I'm not into that now. Yeah. I'm really not. Because to be a manager, you really do have to have a frontline office, and staff, and you, you have to have the whole thing to be a successful manager. Right. Do you work out any sort of strategic partnerships with some of these agencies since you're like a referral source for them, basically? No, I don't do that. And you know what? They're not really interested either because, as you know now, you can, they can advertise so well now yeah. that they don't really need any referrals. Gotcha. They um, want to keep their own money. So I got to ask this question. So did you get 15%? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Michael's father, who handled Michael's uh, finances, the year after we came home, which would be 2004, met. And I put this in my book, but I never talked about any fees because it's not right. right. But yes, I did get paid a lump sum. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Because, you know, like Michael said to me one day, if I never made it, would you have given me my money back? <laughs> Don't you think that's priceless? That's so typical of him. And what do you say to that? Uh, I love it. Oh, here's what I said. Michael, I always knew you'd make it. (laughs) There was no other option, (laughs) I always knew. (laughs) Yeah. And look what it led to. My book, my consulting, and it isn't just the money. It's just self-satisfaction that I really love what I do, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Where do you see this going? Like, what's what's your big vision? Because you've evolved so many times in what you're doing and what you offer? What, what's the next evolution? I think I'll just stick to my consulting, which is something I can do even when I travel, and just enjoy my time. Yeah. Because I can pick and choose, you know, talking to people when I want uh, or when they want what's convenient. And I have no pressure now because God knows I had tons of pressure. Right, right. Well, and it sounds like you've just, you've created a whole environment that, that, really is ideal for what you want right now. I mean, it's it's no pressure. You're able to give people the help that, that they're looking for and in a space and in an industry that you have a heck of a lot of, of experience in. So you've really like carved out your own little niche of what's a perfect business for you. 
Well, yes, and you know, uh, one of the questions that I have been asked by many people like yourself and even is uh, the best business advice that I could ever re- have ever received. Well, you know what? In this industry, um, I was always, it's not the easiest to listen to other people because the entertainment industry is very volatile and very, you know, fl- it can be very flaky. But I think the most important thing anybody can do in any business is listen to your inner feelings and follow your instincts. You know, because we all have feelings and instincts. And if you follow them, you know, if there's any red flags, any red flags at all, you need to just check it out. You can never say, oh, well, maybe. You just have to follow your instincts. And that's what I did all along with everything, with Michael and everything I've ever done. And to me, that's the most important business advice I can give to anybody. And, of course, to always be honest and professional and have a great attitude because nobody wants to work with anybody who has a poor attitude. Because you know yourself, even artists. Remember you said, Michael, on the stage? Oh, yeah. You know, how many artists have you seen on stage? And they're so talented, but they've got such an attitude. You think, oh, mm-hmm. who are they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. To me, that's, that's, the, that's the advice I would give. Attitude. Paramount. Mm-hmm. Well, Beverly, I really want to thank you so much for giving us an insight to your awesome, awesome business experiences that you've had. Just so entertaining and uh, really interesting insight into kind of the industry and, and the path that you have followed. So thank you so much for sharing that. Well, Katie, thank you for choosing me. I'm really, really happy that you did. going to just love that conversation. Holy cow, isn't Beverly just awesome and full of spunk? I was so surprised. She told me after the fact, and Beverly, I hope you don't care that I'm sharing this. She is 75 years young, and I about fell out of my chair because that woman has so much energy. Oh my gosh, like I felt it coming through the phone. I mean, it was just so intense. So um, man, what great lessons to be able to hear from a woman who has had a massive business experience and journey. And uh, just, man, I really got her resolve, like her belief, her resolve, and her determination to hustle it and just make it work. I really, really felt that. And I hope you did too. Man, I hope you had a great time today and I'll see you on the next episode. 